many of us, as a kid, thumbing through a comic book could transport us to other worlds, flying through the universe at the speed of light, watching immortal enemies battling to the death. And some of us never grew out of it. Welcome to the Under the Mask Podcast, where we discuss the super process behind superheroes. Not just superheroes, aliens, horror, thrillers. If you can find it on a comics page, you can find it here. Here, you'll learn how to make comics. From the initial outlines, scripts, and artwork, to printing and putting the final book in a bag and board. For many years, Bill Colomb has written his book, Kinetic, and sold thousands of copies across the nation. And now we're inviting you along for an inside look to the comics process. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you're in the right place. This is the Under the Mask Podcast, and this is Bill Colomb. Under the Mask Podcast, Episode 7. My guest today is probably the most professional and most accomplished guest I've had on to date. Our conversation ran longer than normal, but there was so much information to share. So let's get to it. My guest today is a voice actor and scriptwriter whose directorial debut was nominated for Best Short at the Golden Egg Film Festival in Los Angeles. He's the writer of such comics as Red Christmas and PBOW, and his newest book, Dead Skins, is live now on Kickstarter. At the time of this recording, Dead Skins launched yesterday and has already raised its funding goal. You can check out the Kickstarter at www.friedcomics.com slash kickstarter slash ds. Ladies and gentlemen, Clay Adams. Clay, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. Clay, go ahead and take us back. Tell us about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. So uh, let's see. I was born in a small town called Alpharetta, Georgia, and uh, started acting when I was about eight years old and uh, started professionally acting when I was about 10, doing commercials and voiceovers and eventually went to NYU studying writing and acting. When I got out of uh, NYU, I started doing some work on the soap operas. You know, there used to be all these soap operas that shot in New York, and I started acting on the soaps and that sort of led to me doing some cartoon voiceovers. And I did a role on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Fast Forward, which was a season where I played a character named Cody Jones, who was uh, Casey Jones and April O'Neil's great, great, great grandson. And I was a big fan of the turtles and I brought them into the future and we had all these great adventures there. And that led to a couple of roles on a show called Yu-Gi-Oh! And I did that for many, many years. And uh, then the Great Recession hit and all the soaps got canceled. And for various reasons, we wound up uh, moving the family back to Atlanta. And uh, that's when I started getting serious about writing comics. I had always been a writer. I had been working with uh, Alexandro Philippe, who is my co-creator at Fried Comics. And uh, you might know him from People vs. George Lucas, which was big a while back. Uh, He has a Hitchcock documentary that's on Hulu right now called 7852, Hitchcock shower scene. And then he's also got a couple of movies out uh, right now. 
So Alexander and I uh, started writing comics and we created friedcomics.com in 2013 and we launched a, a couple of series and we've just we've just been putting out content since then and in about 2013 we decided to launch Fried Comics. We did that with this great idea that we were going to make a bajillion dollars selling 99 cent downloads on our website. And uh, as you can imagine that didn't uh, exactly go as planned, but we learned uh, we learned quite a bit. We finished a couple of graphic novels and we uh, we also learned a little bit about uh, using Kickstarter. So that's my that's my secret origin. Some of your previous books were PBOW and Red Christmas. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we launched uh, in 2013 with Pregnant Bitches of War, uh, PBOW, uh, as as we like to call it. And that's sort of a grindhouse feel, as you could probably tell from the title. But it's about six pregnant women who are sucked from the time stream by Nikola Tesla. They accidentally kill a young Hitler and make the world worse. So now they must save the world from a hell of their own creation before their water breaks. The first volume uh, you can read on Webtoons. And I think I checked uh, yesterday. It's had got had something like uh, 25,000 views or something like that. And then Red Christmas has been another book that we uh, have done on Kickstarter that's done well. Uh, that book is sort of a, uh, a crazy Christmas tale. Santa sets out to make all those little brats pay. And your current project is Deadskins. Tell us a little bit about that. So Deadskins uh, started really Alexander and I were working together on a film that shot in Denver. And this was this was maybe back in 2005. I was working in New York as an actor and and uh, Alexander was directing this feature film and, and they brought me in as kind of the quote unquote you know, big name actor. And I came in and I was going to play the bad guy in this movie. And the, the movie uh, itself um, was kind of interesting. Alexander wasn't really treated very well by the producers. Uh, so it was kind of a very tense and strange production. In fact, when I when I saw a cut of the movie later on, uh, they changed so much of it. I was originally brought in to be the bad guy. But somewhere along the way, somebody told the producers that they needed to really up the TNA and uh, ninja quotient of this movie. So uh, suddenly there's this whole like subplot with TNA and ninjas that didn't exist in the original movie. But uh, anyway, as I said, it was kind of like a, a tense and weird production. And Alexander and I were just kind of bonding one night, kind of blowing off steam, trying to forget the uh, very difficult shoot that we were going through. Somehow we just uh, we came up with this idea that we wanted to cross a Western with a zombie movie. This was, uh, like I said, this is like 2005. So this is well before the idea of a zombie Western uh, became a cliche or a thing. We thought we were being very innovative. I hesitate to use the term zombie when I describe Deadskins. It's um, we, we came up with this concept about a, uh, a Harvard dandy in the Old West who travels home to propose to his girlfriend. When he's on the train on the way back, he falls asleep. And he, when he wakes up, everyone's dead but him. And when he gets to his town, it's the same thing. Everybody's dead or gone, except for the town drunk, Jack. Our logline is a Harvard dandy and his blind drunk companion are all that stand between the Old West and an undead apocalypse. And we say this is the true story of Custer's last stand. Whatever they taught you in school is bullshit. It's the walking dead meets blazing saddles. So uh, what was your inspiration for Deadskins? So Deadskins came about really, uh, like I was saying, we we just, you know, wanted to cross a Western with a zombie movie. 
Again, it was before that was really a thing. And Alexander grew up, uh, he's Swiss French, so he kind of has a, a different perspective on America and Americana than I do or, or than your typical uh, American does. And I think that's why uh, he's been so successful with his documentaries where he examines the filmmaking process. So, you know, he he really has a different perspective on Americana. And so he was just really in love with the Old West. He was kind of the driver force there. And I think at the time he was also doing a documentary about zombies. So it just it came up with this idea that we wanted to cross those things. You know, I, I think probably also Shaun of the Dead was out around the same time because I remember our, our working title for the uh, for the screenplay. It started as a screenplay. The working title of the screenplay was Shane of the Dead. So cool news for you. Deadskins was fully funded in less than 12 hours. We raised it in like nine hours, which is uh, which is new for us. We've we've never been there. So that was cool. Now, I'm sure a lot of my listeners are probably asking the same questions or want to hear me ask the question. How'd you do it? Ah, aha. So it's um, years of hard work. Uh, I, I wish I could say there was a there was a magic pill, but this is our eighth Kickstarter. It really shows how uh, sticking with Kickstarter, launching consistently and just building that audience and delivering for that audience, how things can build and build. And and in fact, I'm working with Fabio Ramachi and Alaria Kioka. They're the artists on uh, Red Christmas and PBOW right now. We're doing the second volume of of uh, PBOW. And uh, I just emailed them both yesterday and said, I want to thank you. I know you guys didn't have anything to do with this book, but you had everything to do with helping build our audience. Part of this success, I think, belongs to them. Honestly, this was just the culmination of years and years and years of hard work and and like kickstarting repeatedly, delivering for backers. I think it helps that we had some great artists involved. Obviously, when you have uh, when you have people of that caliber involved, I, I think that helps grab the eye. And I think uh, I think that also helped us, too. But I, I just I just put it down to years of hard work. Uh, so speaking of uh, just creatively moving up in the world, tell us about your art team. Yeah, so um, so the art team on uh, on Deadskins, uh, we hired. Uh, this was just dumb luck. We hired a uh, an up and coming young artist by the name of Layla Del Duca at the time, 2013. She was right maybe out of college or something. She was uh, she was new to the uh, the comics world. And we hired her based on the recommendation of a friend of ours. And uh, she did a fantastic job. And after completing Deadskins, Layla Del Duca went right into a project at Image called Shudder. And her career has just blown up since then. So as I say, since then, she's also done uh, The Wicked and The Divine. And she's actually slated, I think, coming up in June is going to be doing uh, something with Wonder Woman. Yes. Yeah. So uh, she did all right for herself. We're very happy for her. Now, the artwork on Deadskins, a lot of times it goes pencils, inks, and then uh, you add the color later. But this was just uh, the pencils and then you added the color. Yeah, we had a very specific look that we wanted because it was set in the Old West. We wanted something that kind of had that old timey feel, maybe that looked like a, a an old wanted poster or something like that. So Brett Nienberg was uh, our art director at the time. He had a very specific vision for the book. And so he just asked Layla to do pencils and then he did a color treatment over it. There were actually two different versions of Deadskins that were created. We did um, what we now refer to as the Painted Desert edition, where Brett did. Uh, I, I thought it was super cool stuff. He he did just a lot of things with color on the page. But we also felt like that maybe some of the storytelling got lost. 
other than just the black and white, we kept Brett's drops of blood that he added to the page. And I think that black and white and red look just makes it really unique and stand out. It doesn't do us any favors when we go to the printer because uh, now we have to pay for a color book. Clay, tell us about your writing process. How do you write your comic scripts and screenplays? You know, I always attack things differently, I think, depending on um, whether it's a comic or whether it is a screenplay. Deadskins, because it did start as a screenplay, Alexander and I, it was a very collaborative process. We would we would talk, we would laugh, whatever made us laugh, that's what went in. And we would we would sort of take extensive, uh, make extensive notes. And then I'd go and, and sort of shape them up into, you know, a, a basic shape. And then we'd go over and edit them together. And that's kind of how we do our comics now, actually. I will usually now, I will sit down with a, uh, just a little notebook and I'll hand write. I'll go to a different rooms, something I don't associate with working. So it's not the office. It's not it's not somewhere where I feel this pressure of working. And I will generally just sort of write out the story from beginning to end by hand. And then I'll kind of type it up. And as I'm typing it up, I might make alterations or something. But that really that first handwritten part, I think, is so important because it's just you're you're crafting something by hand. There's no pressure. Uh, You don't have to get it right. But usually I find that by taking that pressure off, you do get it right. But then when you type it up, you can kind of edit it. And then for a comic, I'll start breaking it down by page. Like how much information can I get across on this one page? What are the five to seven images I think I can pack in here? And then once I sort of do that, I'll I'll then break it down you know, into what exactly those panels are and describe those panels. And then because I do come from a background of commercial screenwriting, I always do the dialogue last. So my my philosophy is that the visuals are more important than the dialogue. Dialogue is important, but it's really a visual medium. So we want to see what's on the page first. And then the dialogue should just complement or or maybe be a counterpoint to what we actually see. So I'll actually, when we send the scripts off to the artists that we work with, when the scripts come back or when the art comes back, I'll go through and I'll read dialogue based on the art because like half the time the artist has told the story so much better than I could in the dialogue. And so I can, oh, well, I can cut that or this will have more dramatic impact or this will be funnier if I phrase it this way with this art. And that's sort of the process with the comics now. And working with Alexander, for example, on Fried, um, we we have a very similar style uh, as to how we worked on the screenplays. We'll sit down and we'll we'll break the story together. We'll come up with the visuals together. And then I'll sort of sit down and, and pound that into a script that he and I will then go over and kind of edit together. So it's a very collaborative process. And that's sort of what I love about making comics. Now, my favorite character in Deadskins was the uh, blind uh, bar owner, Jack. Uh, <laughs> I thought he j- I thought he just said a lot of crazy things and he was very uh, almost a uh, Mr. Magoo type. Who was your favorite character to write? Well, definitely Jack was a lot of fun. And in fact, when I was writing him, writing his dialogue, I would hear my grandfather uh, and that's sort of who I would base his voice on. Not that my grandfather was anything as crazy as Jack, but Jack was definitely a lot of fun to write. And like that sort of Mr. Magoo type bumbling, I guess, into success made him a lot of fun to write. And then we also had, you know, the full story has uh, Custer, like we say, it's the true story of Custer's last stand. So we got to write Custer and we discovered in our research that Custer was a bit of a publicity hound. We decided to make him this guy that 
kind of had a Napoleonic complex. And uh, so we made him very, very, very short guy, kind of based on uh, Yosemite Sam from the uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. And uh, we gave him a biographer that uh, Custer would just go around uh, describing everything that he does to his biographer, who's just, you know, furiously scribbling notes. And that provided for a lot of comedy. And then we also had, you know, we, we had fun with a couple of our uh, of our zombies. There's a character called uh, Tongue in Cheek, who uh, is so named because uh, his tongue hangs out a hole in his cheek. But he's a, a he's a pyromaniac zombie. So he likes to just set everything on fire. So he was a lot of fun to write. A couple of the other uh, a couple of the other bad guys were kind of fun. We pulled them from history, tried to make some some historically accurate uh, details with some of those guys. A couple of bad guys named uh, Thomas and Boston. And um, man, it's been years since I did research for this book, but but those were actually based on real people. They were real. And I, I don't know, we just turned them into uh, real jerks. And and one of them, one of them was kind of a brute who loved gumdrops. And the other one uh, was sort of his keeper. And they were kind of fun to write. And then uh, there was a uh, there was a zombie that we called tongue in cheek. And he he couldn't really talk because his tongue literally like hung out through a hole in his cheek. So he couldn't speak, except he was obsessed with fire. He was a pyromaniac zombie. And so he would always show up and, and set things on fire. And, and he, he was fun to write. Um, I'm making this book sound crazy. The story actually does make sense. The story makes sense, but it is a crazy book. There's a lot of crazy antics that are going on. And I like that you brought up Custer because I thought it was just so funny that uh, he, he was sitting down and then he got up and he was like, you know, he was he would narr- he basically wrote his autobiography, just speaking it to the biographer saying, you know, Custer rose elegantly from his chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that that kind of stuff was a lot of fun to write. And and that's, you know, going back to your original question about like the writing process and how you how you write. We made a real effort in this book to make every character distinct and somebody that you would remember or, or little details you would remember. I think that is something like it's always something I have to remind myself. Right. Don't just write a generic character. Make just pick someone who's very, very specific. So doing doing stuff like that with with characters like Custer was a lot of fun. All right. So you said that Jack might be back for future projects in PBOW. Yeah. So right now we're doing the second volume. And so the first volume, as I mentioned, it's kind of a, a time travel tale. And now in the second volume, the ladies are are trying to get back home. I don't want to spoil too much, but let's just say they they might come into contact with Jack in the Old West. We've uh, we've actually brought him back for a short story that we put in the back of one of our Red Christmas books. We do we do little backup tales featuring Frida, our waitress character. The, the, the whole idea with Fried Comics, uh, we created this fictional world where we we all work in a diner and uh, and Frida is our horrible waitress who who serves the comics to our uh, our Kickstarter backers. Anyway, uh, Frida got popular enough that we started putting her in her own short stories. Somebody wrote in and, and said, hey, why why don't you have any stories about Frida? So we gave her a little backup feature. And in our very first one, we made it so that the fried diner is sort of the nexus point of all realities. And so all of these stories that exist within the fried universe, they're all kind of connected through the diner. So Cataract Jack and uh, and his wife, Sylvia, show up and have some adventures in the fried diner. So um, anyway, so we've brought him back once. We're probably going to bring him back again in PBOW because he's just too much fun to write. And 
and the fried diner actually <laughs> is going to make uh, an appearance inside PBOW as well. So that that story is getting crazier too. Yeah, I want to say uh, uh, Freda and the fried diner made an appearance in uh, Red Christmas as well. Yeah, yeah, she did. She did. That was actually the first time we we wrote her and the diner into the book. Slowly but surely, we're we're incorporating the fried <laughs> the fried diner and Frida into those uh, into those books. So yeah, she'll be she'll be spreading her wings and and appearing in other places as well. Now, I just want to tell my listeners, I'm on your uh, mailing list and a lot of Clay's mailing list is done from the point of view of Freda. And it, it is a hoot to read. Uh, just every time I get something in my inbox, I say, OK, what what crazy things is this woman going to say now? How did you how did you come up with the idea of Freda? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not really sure. We somehow when we were coming up with uh, with the website of friedcomics.com, you know, back in 2013, we thought we were going to get super rich selling 99 cent downloads on our site. And that, you know, that didn't really happen. But we we wanted a character that would sort of serve as the guide to the website. So we started serializing these comics on the website. We'd post, you know, a page a week or something like that. Or you could buy the downloads and get the story a lot faster. And so we somehow decided to make this uh, since we decided we wanted to be a diner. We we needed a waitress and we decided that was going to be our mascot. And we just decided that she was a real grouch. She was just a terrible person, uh, except she might be nice to you if you signed up for the mailing list. So we had her sort of as like this really awful person on the website. And anytime you saw her, she was scowling or just saying something awful. But if you signed up for her, her for the mailing list, all of a sudden she got happy. Right. And and you would see pictures of her smiling and she was nice to you. And uh, I don't know. We thought that was funny. And so for some reason, I, I don't know, I just started writing the newsletters uh, in character and that just sort of became a thing. I think it makes the mailing list, the, the newsletter unique and fun for me to write. And I and I hope fun for people to read. There's a double edged sword to, to writing in character because it's not great self-promotion for me. Right. Like because people aren't attaching me or my name to this thing. They're associating it with Frida. But I've noticed that that some people have fierce loyalty to Frida and, you know, they'll they'll write as if she's a real person. And I, I think some people do think she's a real person. Uh, so I'm, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling the magic, but they'll they'll write to her and, and Frida will write back. And I decided I did decide early on that I that I didn't want it to just be sort of a newsletter. One of my favorite things about reading comics growing up was the letter column. I thought that the the loss of the letter column was huge. I mean, even now when I go back and I read old comics, I'm much more likely to just read the letter column and skip the story altogether. And there's something about that interplay between the readers writing in and the editor or the writer responding, I just think is lacking from comics today. So I thought, well, what if I could, I could make our newsletter kind of like a letter column? Periodically, Frida will throw out a question and uh, and people will write in and, and respond and, and she'll respond to them. It's been a good way for me to sort of build the rapport between Frida and the readers. And it also a lot of times like it just takes pressure off of me for having to come up with things to say every couple of weeks, you know, because if I know that I can throw out this question, that's one newsletter. People will respond. That's another, you know, and it just kind of it just kind of carries me for a while. Uh, so when you're writing, do you write solely on the computer? 
I used to write solely on the computer, but you know, the, the older I get, the more I appreciate time away from a screen at a certain point, just staring at a screen, it gives you such fatigue. And I think it was maybe from Warren Ellis's mailing list. I saw that he had actually gotten this idea maybe from Jeff Lemire, Lemire. I'm not quite sure how to say that, but he got this idea from, from him to start handwriting some things in a notebook. And I've seen other, other writers suggest this. And, and I think Neil Gaiman talks about writing certain books at night, handwritten in a notebook as a way of making it different from something that he writes during the day on a computer. I've been I've been doing this for the last couple of things I've worked on where I'll just take a notebook and I'll go to a room that I don't necessarily associate with writing. Like, so I'm not in my office. I get in a different space and I sit down and I just hand write. It's kind of an interesting process because you sit down and you're facing a blank page just as you do with a computer screen because you're writing it in a notebook. It doesn't have that pressure of being like the final thing or this thing that you have to edit. And I can just sort of write and let my thoughts run free and let the story kind of naturally tell itself. So I might just, uh, you know, I might jot down ideas about characters, but I might also just sit down and basically write a whole story from beginning to end. I kind of look at it and I go, oh, yeah, I think I think that really is the story, maybe with a few tweaks here and there. But it's it's just kind of a way of of separating it from the work of sitting down at the computer and and having the pressure of really producing something. So I, I recommend anybody kind of try that out. I've been a fan of, of working that way for the last several things. And then that makes it easier. Like if you can break things up into stages, it makes it easier. So I never try to write, you know, a full script in one sitting. I'll I'll start with an outline, kind of, you know, just telling the story in um, Hollywood lingo as a treatment, right? You write, you write everything out, the full story, and you get that worked out first. And then I'll start maybe thinking about the pages. If we're talking about a comic book, I'll start thinking about, well, how much information can I get across on this page? How much information do I need to get across on this page and trying to make every page special. And then once I figure out what's going to go on each page, I can then start breaking that down into panels. Well, then what are the specific, you know, five to seven specific moments that I can capture since comics are, a you know, a snapshot in time. And then once I do that, you've got the visuals. I think part of that comes from my training in commercial screenwriting, where uh, where you're really kind of trained to think about the visuals first and that anything that happens in the dialogue is is really secondary or a counterpoint to what's happening in the visuals. So once I have the visuals set, then I can go back and dialogue and I'll usually do another dialogue pass after the art comes in, because sometimes I will get something that's, you know, I say sometimes almost all the time. The art that comes back is so much better than anything I've written that I can then look at the art and I can say, OK, I don't need this dialogue or I can say this in a much better way. Or if I phrase the dialogue like this, when it's paired with this picture, it's going to be a lot funnier or it's going to have a bigger dramatic impact. So it's it just it's just all about breaking it into stages. I had the chance to uh, speak with Brian Michael Bendis at a convention a little while ago. And this is when I was first starting out. And I asked him because we were ju- I just gotten back the artwork and I was about to send it off for lettering. And I was like, hey, uh, you know, Mr. 
Bendis, do you ever do editing on the script after you've gotten the artwork back? And he looks at me and he says, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I, I think it's a fairly common practice, certainly with the Marvel method, where you just come up with a plot and somebody draws it and then you have to dialogue solely off of the art. But I think definitely even people working full script, I think it's fairly common to look at the art and, and make some tweaks in the dialogue. And uh, just real quick, do you ever storyboard your stuff? I mostly do it all in my head, but there have been times where I've done layouts and it's usually I, I'm I I can't draw at all. If I could, my my life would be so much easier. I will make stick figure storyboards sometimes. Uh, and, and I've done that. I've done that for short movies, uh, for short films that I've shot where I will storyboard as a stick figure. But then in comics, I've I've done it a couple of times where I know I'm asking the artist for a lot. And I, I know, you know, I, I think there was one one page where, you know, I was asking for an insane amount of panels, but I had a very specific vision of how that was going to lay out. And so I was able to to send it to to Fabio. This was for an issue of Red Christmas. And I just said, look, just so you know that this is workable, that I'm not asking for something crazy. Here's kind of what I have in mind. And so I sent him a layout. And uh, and of course, he 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 didn't follow it at all. And what he did was so much better than what I had in mind. I think it was probably good for our working relationship that he at least knew that I was cognizant of the fact that I was asking for something difficult and that I wasn't just taking it for granted that I could say something ridiculous and and just expect him to draw it. I, I at least was trying to meet him halfway. And, I, and I've done that on something else where we offered a reward with the last PBOW campaign where we would create a one page short story featuring you, you being the backer, right? So, so somebody pledges for a high tier reward and we create a one page story around them set in the world of PBOW. And we had one person take us up on it. I gathered some information from that backer kind of about sort of what they wanted, what characters they wanted to see themselves interact with. And I came up with this idea, but for some reason, I, I did have like very specific visuals in mind. So I storyboarded that as well. And I think for the most part, Fabio followed that. I think maybe he changed, you know, one or two things. He's uh, again, he's a much better artist than I am. So he could he could realize it much better than I could in stick figures. But the essential idea was the same. I'm kind of a big fan of trying anything and seeing what works. I don't think anything's a bad idea. Whatever, whatever works for you. I only brought it up because that's the way that I do it. But there are writers who do that like uh, Mike Barron, who uh, who wrote Nexus and he wrote The Badger, two uh, really big influences on fried comics, by the way, um, especially The Badger, because that's that sort of crazy everything but the kitchen sink approach to writing. But uh, but Mike Barron, uh, he also wrote a, a run of Flash back in the 80s and he wrote some Punisher. Uh, he's he's been around for a while and uh, and I know he storyboards everything. He does rough layouts and uh, particularly on Nexus, you know, he would he would draw the whole comic and he'd send the comic in to, you know, Steve Root. Sort of the same thing, like basically follow the layouts. But if he had a better idea, he'd change it. What's been your best moment so far in your career? I mean, yesterday was definitely a highlight. Getting funded on day one uh, was was definitely cool. And getting, you know, I, I got I got some emails from some comic creators who's who I've never met, whose work I've 
uh, enjoyed for for many many years you know one one guy sent me a message yesterday uh and he he worked on one of the very first comics i i ever read as a kid and i i didn't i didn't want to tell him that but but you know that like that was cool i just think the fact that i'm making stories and that i'm having fun doing it and that the readers have responded in a way that has allowed me to keep doing it for a few years i mean i think that whole thing is a highlight what i love about comics is that it's a community. And there's something about particularly this moment we're living in right now with the pandemic and everybody staying at home. I think I think we're missing that. And it's like it's it's great to to hop on a chat like this and and talk to somebody. And I think because Fabio and and Ilaria, who, um, you know, the artists working on on Red Christmas and PBOW, they live in Italy. So I'm not I'm not able to meet with them face to face. What I love about comics is that sense of community. The fact that you can go to a Comic-Con and you can connect with people, or at least you could in, in any year but 2020. And that has just been a highlight, just getting just getting to know people and getting to know people in the industry and realizing how, how small it is, how you will come in contact with people whose work you've admired for a long time and that they, they might actually be friends or at least followers of your work. Um, I, you know, I, I did a Comic-Con last year and I was asked to do a panel and I, and like, I didn't even pay attention to it. It was just like, it was going to be my first panel. And I thought, well, yeah, this is this is cool. This is my first panel. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. I will do this panel. And I get there and the panel is uh, it's Christopher Priest, Ron Mars and me. And I'm sitting with these guys going, OK, one of these things is not like the other. I have no business being up here talking comics with these guys. Christopher Priest, I was reading his work um, back when he still went by James Owsley and uh, was writing great Spider-Man stuff and Conan the Barbarian. If I had to boil this very long winded answer down to one thing, I would say just the community, just becoming part of the community is the highlight. Uh, one thing that I love just so much about comics, uh, like you were saying, community, the community is one of the most inclusive communities that I've ever been. Rarely any gatekeeping. If you're making comics, you're my people. And that's the thing. All you have to do, you, you mentioned breaking into comics. All you have to do to break into comics is make a comic and sell it to somebody. Whether that's Kickstarter, Patreon, on your website, Comixology, Amazon, you're in. And just keep making the comics. You'll stay in. You know, whatever your ambition is, if your ambition is to write for Marvel and DC and, and you you haven't written for Marvel in DC. Okay, fine. I, I can see how that feels like you haven't quote unquote broken in. But I decided a long time ago that I was going to focus less on goals and more on systems. There's this philosophy out there. A goal is not in your control, right? I can say I'm going to go to Mars and that's my goal, but there are a lot of factors that could keep me from going to Mars, but I am in control of systems that I can create to get to Mars. Whether I join NASA and start training as an astronaut and doing these things to fulfill this ultimate thing, you know, of going to Mars, whether I get to Mars or not is beside the point, right? The point is I need to create a system of like a thing that I do every day that is just the thing I do every day, no matter what. And the thing I do every day is I make comics, whether or not I, I hit any kind of, you know, 
preconceived notion of what success or 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 goal is is sort of irrelevant. It's just more about here's the thing I show up for every day. I I think once you sort of let go of those uh, of that concept of of I've got to achieve this goal, then then that really just frees you to have fun enjoy the ride and you'll actually probably if not achieve that goal get pretty darn close maybe closer than you would have if you were just solely focused on the goal uh what have you been your biggest challenges biggest challenges you know it, it's one of those questions that i want to answer very very diplomatically because it's one of those things where i could probably give a very flip answer that that might sound insulting and i don't mean to insult anybody so the real answer is the challenge is Figuring out how to work as a collaborator. What that means is in the beginning, I think Alexander and I had this concept that, well, we're the creators and we're going to hire people to fulfill our vision, right? It's sort of like the director, the film director mentality, right? That like, I'm the person in charge and I'm going to uh, hire somebody to fulfill this vision. And so in in what I refer to as phase one of fried or, or fried, uh, version 1.0, which was kind of like 2013, 2014. That's sort of how we operated. We created, I think, good work, but it was maybe not as smooth as it could have been. I think when you when you work with people and you have that attitude, I think it's easy for, for someone that you hire to say, you know, I'm not really a collaborator on this thing. I'm just a hired gun. And so their loyalty to you is limited. They're in it for a paycheck and then they're kind of looking for the next big thing. So that's that's not not remotely a slam on worked with during that time. It's more of a, of a reflection and a realization that my mindset was not right. My attitude was not a good attitude. Version 2.0 of Fried really began late in 2016 when I signed up for Tyler James list launch course. He talked about building a mailing list. So I joined and kind of through that process, that's where we started rebuilding Fried after a, a period of, of dormancy. And we decided we were going to go back to Kickstarter. And I really just made an effort to be a better collaborator and that I was going to make sure that the other people knew that they were valued beyond just the work that they were turning in. And I think that mindset shift really has helped our success because I feel extraordinarily lucky to have found a collaborator in Fabio who 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 has uh, who has drawn Red Christmas? He's now drawing PBOW, and and he he introduced us to Ilaria, who's who's coloring it, and uh, and Emilio, who has also done some work. I put out an ad seeking an artist on Reddit in the in the Comic Collabs forum, and I stole this from Charlie Stickney, who did it very successfully in White Ash. And in fact, I just I just copied Charlie's artist wanted message. I tweaked it, you know, I, I changed it so that it was about my project, and then I posted it, and uh, we got a lot of of responses. Fabio stood out. Um, you know, there there were a lot of great artists that we could have chosen from, but Fabio really stood out to me and to Alexander because he expressed a certain enthusiasm. In fact, he 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 wrote us a note that just said, "I don't really fit what you're asking for," because we asked for a very specific art style. We were trying to match somebody else's art, but he said, "Your idea is exactly the kind of book I want to work on. I want to draw this book." And so what I'd like to do for you is I would like to draw a test page. If you don't like it, then I, I wasted a day drawing a test page for you, you know. 
But he said, if you do like it, it'll be the first page of the book and we'll just move forward from there. And I said, you know, I like this guy's enthusiasm. Again, I, I knew that I was I was wanting to work on being a better collaborator, but I also knew that I wanted to find someone who wanted to be a collaborator too, and not just a hired hand. And um, so he drew the test page. The test page was great. I showed it to Alexander and Fabio being Italian, he had done some work from for the Italian comics industry, which I guess the stylistic things that, that Fabio did reminded Alexander of some of the comics he read as a youth, you know, in Switzerland. Anyway, his work spoke to Alexander. Um, his work spoke to me, but also his his just the the personal touch really made a difference. And, and I feel just extraordinarily lucky that we found him and that we found each other. You know, we've done three issues of Red Christmas together. We've done one issue of PBOW and we're going to do more. And, and we're working on some other stuff. I, I had a conversation with him this morning and uh, we're cooking up a bunch of stuff. But it's been it's been a few years of just great collaboration. And so getting to that point where I could collaborate with somebody like that and finding the right collaborator, that probably was the greatest challenge. But the payoff has been fantastic. And I've got to say, just speaking with you for the last uh, hour, hour, 15 minutes, we've had so much great advice. Uh, but when you were just starting out, what was the best advice that someone imparted you that just clicked for you? So the best advice that I got, and I will try to give it as well, just get published as fast as possible. And that doesn't sound like really brilliant advice, but it is. It's funny. So so it came to me from Brian Vaughn, uh, who's, you know, done quite well for himself. Yep. Needs no introduction. <laughs> um, and he said he was given it by Neil Gaiman, who was given it by Alan Moore. OK, so I say that <laughs> I, I, I say that just to sort of, you know, put these remarks into context that that this is actually much better advice than you might think, because my, my initial my initial response upon hearing that was this is your advice. Get published like as fast as possible. Like, well, that that's easy for Brian Vaughn to say, or it's easy for Neil Gaiman to say, or it's easy for Alan Moore to say, you know, I'm a guy just starting out. But what I realized is what they meant was just get your work out there and get it in front of an audience and they will tell you very quickly where your deficiencies are. And not not in a mean way, not in a, you know, not in a rip you to shreds kind of way. And sometimes, it, especially with the Internet now, right, like it can feel like you're getting ripped to shreds. You put your work out there and you get it in front of people and you just start learning so much faster than you do when you're just sort of sitting alone in your room creating these things. You know, I mean, even even like Deadskins, the the Kickstarter, I didn't know what to expect. We're in a pandemic, right? People are losing their jobs. I didn't know if anybody was going to back this thing. You know, even the night the night before we launched, I was talking to my wife going like, I don't know, you know, is three thousand dollars too much to ask for right now? Um, do I need to have a, a, a shorter window or a longer window to fund? I kind of dithered around some of these questions for a few weeks before we launched. And it's one thing to just be in your head and in your room and creating something putting it out there, you get a response. You get an immediate response. Being worried about, you know, asking for $3,000 was was not the right question to be asking because it it wasn't a concern. We funded very quickly. But but I also know that part of that success, as I said, I think in in my first answer to to the question, part of yesterday's success was all the years of hard work and all the things that I learned running Kickstarters that took a month 
to raise $3,000 or that took a month to raise $6,000. You know, I ran a campaign last year that um, we were seeking or I ran two campaigns last year that were seeking about $6,000. And and in one, it took us about a month to get there. And then in another, it took us, uh, I think we only did two weeks, but, you know, it took almost the full two weeks to get there. Doing the launch after launch after launch and, and putting the books out there, you start to learn, okay, what is the audience like? What do they respond to? What would they like to see in a Kickstarter campaign or on a Kickstarter page that will get them to back? Yeah, I, I just I just think going back to that first answer, I, I think it's just that that culmination of all the years of hard work in order to get to a point where, you know, it's 2020 and I'm launching my eighth campaign and we fund on day one and we're a project we love and it feels like a big success. Well, that took seven years of hard work and I had to start to do it. And that's really what that advice is, that that get published as fast as you can. That advice really is just start, just start, whatever it is, fail at it, suck at it, get feedback and then do it better next time and just keep doing that. And there it is. Hey, Clay, where can we find your Kickstarter for Deadskins? So um, so you can search us up at Kickstarter. You can you can look for Deadskins or uh, I've got this handy link for you. You can go to friedcomics.com slash Kickstarter slash DS. That's DS as in Deadskins. Friedcomics.com slash Kickstarter slash DS. And where else can we find you out there in cyberspace? Yeah, I am on Twitter. You can find me at Clay's Evil Twin. Follow me. I'd love to say hi. Hey, well, Clay, thank you so much for coming on and talking Deadskins with us and just imparting all a lot of wisdom that uh, you've accumulated over the years. Thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. If you know a creator that makes comic books or any other media and think they'd be a good fit for the show, drop us a line at underthemaskshow at gmail.com. You've been listening to the Under the Mask podcast with Bill Colome. Welcome to the family. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you've found the right podcast for you. Thanks for listening, and make sure to like or leave a review, and we'd appreciate it if you'd tell a friend or two. To reach out, visit us at underthemaskpodcast.com. This has been a presentation of Why Comics. Till next time, this is the Under the Mask Podcast, signing off. 